Why do you travel? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Travel writer Pico Iyer has been noticing lately that a lot of travelers are paying a premium to get away, just to find a little peace and quiet. What people most want on holiday is freedom from their habits as well as their homes and the chance to be unplugged, to be out of radio contact. Nobody from the office can get to them. Well, that's one reason I stay in a monastery a lot. <laughs> Pico Iyer joins us in the hour ahead to mull over some of the quiet places that make us feel at home wherever we may roam. London-based travel writer Will Hyde recommends a favorite beach near Cape Town, South Africa, as a perfect place to relax. If you wanted to go to one spot with a nice, cool cocktail and watch the sun go down, then you could not go wrong with doing it in Camps Bay, watching the sun sink over the beach there. And we'll look into how easy it is to get your adrenaline really going with the abundance of outdoor adventures around the southern tip of Africa. Enjoying quiet places and a guide to Cape Town. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Listen. Do you hear that? It's hard to find silence anymore, and maybe looking for it on the radio is not really the best place. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're meeting one of today's most respected travel writers. Pico Iyer joins us in just a moment to help us enjoy the quiet places of our world and to feel at home, even in the silence of being an outsider when we travel. Later in the hour, travel writer Will Hyde joins us from his home base in London to suggest we take a closer look at one of his favorite haunts, Cape Town in South Africa. It's a relatively painless flight from Europe, has plenty of easily accessible outdoor adventure options, and offers comfortable weather all year long, even in July. That's the depth of their southern hemisphere winter. But let's start by meeting Pico Iyer. His books and frequent articles in prominent magazines and newspapers have long inspired us to find meaning in our travels and to examine the world both around and within us. Pico was born in Britain to Indian immigrant parents, and as a youth, he traveled between home in California and school in England. His books include Video Night in Kathmandu, Falling Off the Map, and his most recent one pays tribute to the late English author Graham Greene. It's called The Man Within My Head. Pico lives with his wife and children in rural Japan, but right now he joins us in our studio to chat about the quiet places in our travels. Pico, thanks for joining us. Very happy to be here, Rick. If you were to sum up The Man Within My Head, your latest work, is it a travel book and, and, and what's the gist of it? I think you could say it's about chapter two of travel. So it's about Graham Greene, the late English novelist, and I think anyone who travels quickly finds that you'll feel as if you're walking through a Graham Greene novel when you're in Saigon or Havana or many of the great cities in the world. And when I say chapter two, I suppose I mean that the first aspect of travel is wonder and discovery and excitement at the freshness of a place. The second is that you're walking down the street in almost any city in the world, but especially in the underdeveloped world, and somebody comes up to you and is very kind and invites you to his house and shows you around, and all these doors fly open that would otherwise be closed. And then at the end of the evening, he says, well, is there any way you can help me get to America? And what do you do with that? He's been so kind to you. What is the kind thing to do to him back, as it were? Um, and I'm always interested in how travel brings us up against these moral and emotional, sometimes psychological challenges that we can sleepwalk past at home. So this book is partly about those aspects of travel, the questions it brings up that we'll never be able to answer. And a lot of people in their travels probably choose not to go there. They, they don't want to deal with those questions. Yes, but I the mean, questions come into your hotel room even. But if they you, come into you, yeah. They do. I mean, I've, I've got this shot of me with uh, a bunch of uh, kids in Sri Lanka reaching their hands into my window to beg in my car. Uh, and I'm driving and I've got six hands coming in the window. Mm. And that it, it's symbolic of trying to gain empathy and connect and understand and... and, and uh, it connects you with the truth on this planet. Yes, and we so often travel in order to, to get something, but often we should be traveling also to give something. And uh, it's, it's an understandable impulse on their part. You know, if a millionaire was suddenly to come to my house, I'd, I'd be a normal human being. But a part of me would also think, oh, well, he's in a big position. He might be able yeah. to offer me something. So it's something worth, it's worth thinking about. Yes. I love this phrase in the book, I'm not rooted in a place so much as in certain values and affiliations and friendships that I carry everywhere I go. My home is both visible and portable. Does travel let your home be more than a conventional place that you have a mortgage on? <laughs> yes. I think, as you were saying, because I grew up with Indian blood and an English voice and then an American residence, I grew up with the sense of home being in the home is on the road for me. Home is in the passage of movement. It's in the spaces between places. 
And I think what's interesting now is that so many kids in this country and elsewhere are in that same state and that home has less and less to do with a piece of soil and more with a, a piece of soul in some ways, that if we were to go to the local campus here or local high school and talk to the kids, I bet many of them would say, oh, my parents are from Ethiopia, but my girlfriend's from Vietnam, and my dream is to go to Costa Rica, and and they will create their home as a patchwork of the many places that are a part well, of their plus lives. plus their family um, is split up, and they're living weekends with their dad, and they're going too. down to the other town with yeah. their mom, and yes. where is my home? Do you have right. a home? Are you an orphan, or can you find home still? Exactly, and I think you have to create a home within yourself, because, as you say, it won't come to you externally. Everybody's ethnocentric, I think, to a certain degree. A lot of people don't have the blessing of having a, a multi-continental, multi-ethnic kind of upbringing like you. Mm. How are you ethnocentric? <laughs> I'm, I'm locked within my own prejudices. And for example, I'll often tell people about the wonders of travel, and they'll say, well, we can find it all in our hometowns. And they're right, because I think one of the happy developments nowadays is that if you want to see Ethiopia and Vietnam and Iran, just drive across the street in <laughs> Seattle or New York yeah. or Toronto. Or, so we don't have to actually go to the far corners If you of the want world. to go to church, you can just tune in to Reverend so-and-so on <laughs> Channel 42. <laughs> yes, you know? exactly. The world has come right into our homes now in that now sense. Now, you, you've recently met the Dalai Lama. Yes. Actually, I've known him since I was a kid, and he was the subject of my last book called The Open Road. And he's a very interesting traveler because, as you know, he spends most of his life on the road. Yeah. And what I notice is that whenever he goes to a place, his first question is, what can I give to it? Uh, like almost a, a doctor traveling around in, in rural areas, seeing how he can help people. And secondly, what can I learn from this place? And uh, what often strikes me about him is that Although he's probably the world's most prominent Buddhist, he goes around the world and tells people, please don't become a Buddhist. Stay within your own traditions. There's no need for you to do the same as me. And it even says recently, um, it's not important that you have a religion. The most important thing is a sense of kindness and responsibility and that every human needs and can gain from. And that's actually something I explore in this book, The Man Within My Head, because Graham Greene famously never, never really became a believer in any religion. But he always thought that what you do in terms of kindness is much more important than what you believe. And I suppose I've been interested in that idea. I know you live in Japan now. In my travels, I, I'm always impressed by how religion, or if not religion, spirituality, sort of uh, permeates a place. It permeates the art, the culture, the history, the hang-ups, everything. <laughs> And do you find some places are more spiritual than other? And if a place is less spiritual, do you find there's a hunger and a willingness to embrace goofy cults and that kind of thing? <laughs> yes, I, I, I think places are like people. And some, especially the older cultures of the world, tend to be very evolved. They've been thinking about these essential issues as Japan or Ethiopia has for thousands of years. And places like California, where I spend a lot of time, are obviously young and more rootless and probably hungry for the wisdom that older cultures have to offer. And I think that also speaks to one of my truths about travel, which is that a place doesn't have to be pleasant to be interesting. Okay. And recently, I've been spending a lot of time in Jerusalem. And I would say it's not beautiful, comfortable, peaceful, or even friendly, but it's incredibly fascinating. And it's like a man in a torn overcoat standing on a street corner, ranting and raving, but ranting and raving so fascinatingly that you can't stop listening. Yeah. So I just want to keep going back there again and again. So I don't even know if Jerusalem is spiritual or not, but it's got a lot of religion and a lot of humanness, and they're constantly colliding. And a lot of edge, yes. yes. And if you are a certain traveler, you want to get close to the action. Close to even, the edge, you yes. You know, close to the edge. <laughs> Pico Ayers, our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He's one of the most sought-after travel writers of our time, and we're glad his travels brought him to our home studio near Seattle. Pico's website is picoayerjourneys.com and his name is spelled P-I-C-O-I-Y-E-R. Much like our conversation, his website includes thoughtful observations on places and people that he groups into the outer world and the inner world. For instance, he puts Cuba in the outer world, and he calls it the most beautiful riddle on the planet. His essays on Japan center on the power of the unseen, and he calls Canada the forgotten home of global imagination and conscience. He writes about his friend, the Dalai Lama, about Somerset Mom, Leonard Cohen, and the English traveler and author, Graham Greene, who's also the subject of Pico's latest book called The Man Within My Head. I, I like contrast in travel. I remember as a young tour guide, I used to inflict a horrible hotel on my tour members just so they'd appreciate a good hotel the next night. Not a very clever idea in, in retrospect, but I really like the contrast when you look mm. at 
uh, the robe of Mary on Michelangelo's pate, it's very rough, and it makes the flesh of Jesus' body very believable mm. and soft. Mm. You see, not that it's soft, but it, in the contrast, the juxtaposition with the robe, as I think Michelangelo intended. I read your Condé Nast article about uh, Koyasan. Mm. Yes. And, and I thought of what a beautiful place. I mean, very special for Buddhists there. Yes. But it's, you know, it's sort of a side trip from Osaka, mm. which would be quite a contrast, I imagine. Yes. Well, and Japan, as you know, is the spiritual home of contrasts because yeah. Kyoto uh, has 2,000 temples in it, but more high rises in Detroit, and it's a oh. city of 1.5 million people. Very... One minute I'm in a Zen garden, and the next minute I'm in an eight-story tall disco where every floor has different kinds of noise. I mean, yes. it was just amazing in Japan, the contrast. Yes. And, of course, they complement one another, and I think the they beauty really of Japan... Japan would be much the poorer without... You hit it on the nail. They complement each other. Mm. I mean, I like going to Blackpool in England, because it makes the Windermere Lake District even more pristine. Yes. Which yes. is just two hours to the north. Yes. When I'm in Italy, I go to Milano, and that's just high power. And then one hour north, you've got Lake Como, which is honeymoon country, and everybody's in a very romantic mood, I think because, in part because of the contrast. Yes. And not everybody is lucky enough to be able to travel as much as I am, but I remember a few years ago, I was in Venice, and that same week I went to Alaska, and that's a perfect example. And each was rich and fascinating in itself, but even better to see the last word in terms of history and culture and urban civilization, Venice, pushed right against the last word in nature and, and expansiveness and silence, as in and Alaska. And I got a lot from the dialogue between them, as well as the individual places. You know, that silence you mentioned is, is such an underrated aspect of travel. Mm. And you, you mentioned the 17th century French philosopher Pascal, who wrote, mm. all of man's problems come from his inability to sit quietly in a room alone. <laughs> what a great <laughs> notion. If people could just sit and enjoy the moment, it would be a little bit easier to share this planet, it seems like. Yes, and I, well, I think that's intensifying and accelerating. And I think more and more people travel now just to get away from their cell phone or from their laptop. Or well, you the, mentioned um, that the future of travel lies in black hole resorts. Mm. What do you mean by that? Uh, for example, a hotel in Big Sur, California, that charges $2,265 a night so that you don't have a TV in your room. And more and more of them are realizing that what people most want on holiday is freedom from their habits as well as their homes and the chance to be unplugged, to be at last out of radio contact. Nobody from the office can get to them. And, uh, well, that's one reason I stay in a monastery a lot. <laughs> I think you proposed an Internet Sabbath. Yes, I have journalist friends who, from Friday night to Monday morning never go online, partly to recover those ancient traditions known as family conversation and dinners. And they have a teenage son, but both of them realize that otherwise the three of them are all with their iPhones or whatever yeah. clicking away. Oh, I mean, you know how the kids are these days. We go up to the cabin, they come back, and bam, they're online immediately. Our daughter Jackie spent a month in Morocco in a village with no computer, no internet, no TV, no phones, and it was for her... It was like, like detox, you know. It was just very necessary and, and much appreciated, at least after the fact, sort of thing. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Pico Iyer. Pico's new book is The Man Within My Head. More with Pico Iyer and your calls in just a moment. Our number is 877-333-7425. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're traveling right now with Pico Iyer. Pico's latest book is The Man Within My Head. Our theme right now is finding stillness in your travels. Pico, why would you want to find stillness? What's the joy of quiet for you? I think movement only makes sense when you have enough stillness to, to collect your thoughts, to collect yourself, to step out of the rush of the modern world 
and begin to understand it and begin to understand yourself. And it's interesting, 20 years ago, I have a friend who teaches high school locally in Santa Barbara, California, and he told me that although he's not a Catholic and his students aren't, he always took them to a Catholic monastery for three days, and he said even the most testosterone-driven, restless, hormone-addled, 15-year-old Californian boy got into silence, and he fell ever quieter, happier, calmer, and he said... Many of his students after two days never wanted to leave. And I thought anything that works for a teenage boy... See, there's a leave. hunger for that. There is. There's a hunger for that. Do you know the, the monastery in France called Thézé? I've read about it. It's one of my dreams to go there. I, oh. as a tour guide, blindsided 24 American tourists by taking them there without explaining what it was. They're in your debt for the rest of your life. Well, half of lives. them loved it, and half of them were going to do a class ass lawsuit. <laughs> I think it was... Because Americans really mm. have a fear of silence. And part of Teze is silence. Teze is this ecumenical, youthful monastic movement in Europe where they have beautiful chanting. A lot of churches all over the world have the Teze music. And you would kneel and look at these icons and hear this uh, spiritual music sung by angelic people from all over the European Union. And for some people it was magical. Mm. And uh, I thought it was so appropriate to get off of the rat race as a tourist and spend just a couple of days in a monastic kind of place like that. But... I think as a tour guide, you need to warm people up to it and explain to it. But let's say you're a tour guide. Where would you find silence in your travels? I think Kyoto is one of the great places. and Everybody is very moved by the gardens of Kyoto because as soon as you get there, something in you opens up. And what the Japanese are so clever with, having worked on silence for a thousand years, is as you know, there's always the sound of running water there. And that actually makes the silence even more of a presence. It's not just the absence of noise. It's the presence of some richness there. And, of course, I think the American West is rich in silence. Places in Alaska around uh, Denali are as, as full of, of a quietude and space. And but you can find silence anything. even in a chaotic setting. Yes, that's the trick. That's the trick. I was just on a cruise ship. 3,000 people packed onto a floating Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. I could find silence. Yes. You, you had to make a point. But when I found that silence, it was like, let's write a poem. It was just powerful. It was yes. beautiful. There's a loggia in Venice on St. Mark's Basilica overlooking the square. Mm. You can stand there all alone and just look at the sea of people, hear the white noise of all this crowd that comes in like the tide, you know? Mm. And there's a sort of a beautiful silence there. Yes. And then every little baby's cry, every little every little seagull becomes part of the melody of it, yeah. the orchestration of it. But it's a discipline to, to find that, I think. But important, because I think when we take holidays, we, we know that we want to see the sights. We know we have a long list of things to do. But it's really the things that are not on the to-do list, the invisible things, That's the things it. that aren't the sights that transform us. Mont Saint-Michel, everybody's going to go to the church on top of that mountain. Mm. But if you just take off your shoes and walk 300 yards out into the mud flat, you'll know what a hermit monk is. I will often, I'll go out at five in the morning if I'm in a yeah. foreign town, and I feel as if I have the whole place to myself. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Pico Iyer about the joy of quiet in our travels. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Jean's on the phone in Terre Haute, Indiana. Jean, thanks for your call. Glad to be on. Do you have a comment or a question for Pico? From his work, um, part of what has struck me is this sense of spirituality in his relationship to the places that he's been, which resonates for me in my own travels. And actually, one of the things I was reflecting on was that it was traveling by myself that created a lot of that for me. And I've done that off and on over the years. Um, initially, as a 21-year-old college student in, in Asia, um, everybody said that was going to be very scary, uh, frightening. My parents didn't really want to know where I was going. But in truth, the richness of having that experience of just engaging with the complexity of these cultures that I was had the privilege of being with um, has had a tremendous power for me. So my question for him is, you know, was there a point where he perhaps realized that and engaged with that quality, where he became aware that was a part of it? Thank you, Jean. I must say you're braver than I am because I think a lot of the things I 
do, I would think twice about doing if I was a woman. And I'm also <laughs> helped by the fact I have a dark complexion, so I kind of can pass as a local in many places. But you're absolutely right. Um, I'm an only child, and I grew up traveling alone a lot. So that's what's natural to me. But I so agree with you that you're much more open to everything around you. People are much more likely to come up to you in the street. Everything, to me, is much richer when I'm by myself. If I'm traveling with somebody else, I'm almost taking my regular everyday self with me and I'm kind of locked into the same patterns and conversations I have at home. So I do, when I find a beautiful place, I excitedly go home and then I take my wife there or I, I try to introduce it to my mother. But I think the really transforming moments have been when I'm alone. And I loved what you said at the beginning of your question. I, I always think of Thoreau saying, I measure travel inwards. I measure distance inwards. Uh, and to travel and to descry new thoughts is to, to just have new imaginings. And I think when people talk about being moved and transported, they're not really talking about a Boeing 747 or an Amtrak mm. train. It's something inward that is what we bring back from it. And so when you mentioned about spirituality, uh, I think the beauty of, of travel is it gives you moments uh, that expand your sense of yourself and that you can't necessarily put into words, but you know you come back a different person from the one who set out. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, th I think that's what I experienced just on a city street, though, that it was simply being immersed in the everyday being of places that I was. That if I'd been with a companion, I would have been chatting with them. Exactly. I would have been aware of what, what were they thinking but very different from simply having that experience for myself. You know, Jean and Pico, I've always wondered if I was going to dedicate three or four weeks to doing the Camino de Santiago and walk across Spain with all the pilgrims, would I want to do it alone or would I do it with a partner or a group? Mm. It's, a mm. tough, it's a tough yeah. issue, I think. What would you do, Pico? I'd set out alone, but I'd probably be doing it in search of community and fellowship. But rather than starting with that partner, which really does shape your, the way you interact with the whole experience. Yes, and it removes you from it, just as Jean was saying. You're worried if the other person is enjoying it. Jean, thanks so much for your call. You're very welcome. Happy solo travels. Thank you. Same to you. Pico, I believe most of your books are shelved in the literary section <laughs> rather than guidebooks. To what degree would you say your books are guidebooks in disguise? I, I think that guides what not to do and often guides of where not to go. For example, I don't recommend North Korea to anybody, but I thought I should go there as a fun experiment. So I think they're not guidebooks. As you know, I started out my, my life writing for Let's Go when I was a, a graduate student many years ago. But uh, I think my books are more explorations. And I, just a couple of days ago, I came across this great sentence by G.K. Chesterton, the English writer. And he said, our challenge is how to remain at once astonished by the world and at home in it. And I think they're about that. You know, I've always wondered if big cultures in our world rub together like tectonic plates, there's going to be some earthquakes. When I say that, what, what comes to mind to you? Where would you see the earthquakes? And how can you see us learning about recognizing the big cultures and how they try to try to connect. I mean, America and China is the first one that comes to my mind. I'm just about to take my first trip to Iran, and I know you've been there, and I'm interested in how these two classic cultures are rubbing against one another. And I must say I began my travels long ago by finding out which countries were in the Trading with the Enemies Act of the Treasury Department. Not that I wanted to befriend our enemies, but I thought these are the countries that I'll never hear about in, in California and they'll never hear about me. So I, in those days, China, Vietnam, Cuba, North Korea. And I thought it was such an interesting exercise because, as you know, the first thing you find whenever you go to an enemy country is that most of the individuals are our friends and very, very excited to meet Americans and want to come to America in many instances. So just a way of cutting below the stereotypes that it's so easy for us to carry around. And when we make those people-to-people -people contacts with our trading enemies or whatever the mm. list is, suddenly it becomes more difficult for their propaganda to do its work yes. on their people to demonize us. Yes. And it makes it more difficult for our propaganda to do its work to demonize them. Exactly. And one reason I go as a dark-skinned person of Indian origin to, let's say, the Middle East is to remind somebody in Syria that a typical American now is somebody like me who's as dark as they are, who's deeply interested in their culture, wants to learn about Islam, and who's traveled 7,000 miles to learn about Damascus. So I'm not the 
American stereotype that they may carry or that their government may propagate, as you were saying. So what's this bucket list called again? Trading with the enemy? Yes. <laughs> I don't know what, what countries are on it now. What is the uh, name of it? Is it actually a thing? Is there actually Yes, the Treasury. So you're you're allowed to go there, but you're not allowed to spend money there. Yeah, that was my um, problem with Iran. I mean, uh, we could go there, but we yes. couldn't consume anything. It was a very fine line. I had to get a lawyer <laughs> to make sure we didn't break any laws. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Pico Iyer. Pico's newest book is The Man Within My Head. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Eileen's on the phone in Bonnie Lake, Washington. Eileen, thanks for your call. Hi there. I'm so delighted to be on the phone with both of you, actually. So I do have a couple of questions for uh, uh, Pico. Uh, how often do you travel now? As opposed to, you know, I've been reading you for years. <laughs> Much less. You, I think you already anticipate the answer. And one of the great luxuries for me is staying at home. And since my home is rural Japan, there's lots of exotic to me even there. So, And I've been lucky enough to see many of the places I'm really hungry to see. So what I do now often is go back to places the way that I'm almost happier to meet an old friend now than to try to find a new friend because you don't have to introduce yourself. You can pick up where you left off. And it's a much deeper conversation. So in terms of seeing new places, I see maybe one new place every year at this point. Okay. And as far as going back to some of your other places, I I have a my own term for that. I call it trip visiting because you're basically uh, going back and, uh, you know, inserting yourself into a friend's lifestyle and helping them out for a while. And it's very rewarding. How many of those trips do you make a year? Many more. I'm visiting Seattle at the moment. It's one of my favorite cities in North America. And it's always changing and I'm always changing. So the dialogue is always a little different. Uh, it'd be hard for me to put a number on it, but there are places like Thailand or Singapore that I've probably been to 50, 60 times in my life, and I'm always excited oh, to go great. to them again. Yes. Um. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, everything changes. And yes. It's, uh, you know, absolutely. Okay, so uh, rural Japan is where it feels like home to you now. Is Did you pick that for that reason, or did you end up there for a different reason? I did pick it, and I think we're again lucky. We're the first generation that can perhaps live in the countries we've always dreamed of. So when I was a little boy, I was always reading Japanese poems, looking at Japanese paintings. I felt this mysterious sense of familiarity. And strangely enough, even after I first went there, instantly I felt I recognized these streets more than I recognized the street on which I was born. And so I left... New York City and a nice job that I had there and I decided I have to live in Japan and that was 25 years ago and I've never looked back. It's a country I want to learn from, it's a country that makes sense to me and it's my kind of mysterious secret home. Eileen, thanks a lot for your call. You bet. Okay, bye. bye now. Pico, that is a, a sort of a luxury and a success in itself is just taking the opportunity and the freedom to actually find the place that's right for you, to psychoanalyze where do you belong on this planet. Yes, it's like, again, finding the perfect partner. And, you know, I often talk about the excess of technology, but of course I couldn't live in Japan without this technology. And even 30 years ago, although if I loved Japan, it would be still hard for me to live in Japan and have all my bosses in New York, as is the case now. But now... Now you can. Now we can, and so, yeah. What are the fundamental differences that you see, if you were going to distill it down, between East and West? East is much more inner, I would say. And East, therefore, is hungry for the material affluence we have, and West is hungry for the spiritual affluence that the East seems to have. So we've got the speed and noise, and they want the speed and noise, and we want some of their thoughtfulness and contentment. And we've also got modernity and innovation and freedom, and they have antiquity and, and wisdom. And I think we have the future tense to some degree, and they have the past, and everyone needs both. And then what do you see as the fundamental differences between Europe and the United States? Same thing, the difference between the old world and the new world. I think they're very good at nuance and we're very good at directness. And each has a lot to learn from the other. And I speak as somebody who grew up between England and California. And as soon as I came to California, I loved the long horizons and the freedom from the past. And as soon as I went back to England, of course, I loved the past. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing about travel. Is you can, it's like eating at different restaurants. Mm. And I've been really mindful of the fact that there's a lot of fear in our society these days. How does travel relate to fear? Travel is a leap of faith. And recently, I've used travel almost as a way into my fear and therefore through it. I think Camus famously said, what gives value to travel is fear. I was in Sri Lanka a few years ago. I found myself in the middle of a civil war. It was peaceful when I planned my trip, but by the time I arrived, the civil war had broken out. I was climbing a huge rock face, and I remembered I'm terrified of heights. I asked the driver what was around us. He said, there are snakes everywhere. I have a bit of a phobia of snakes. And it was a difficult, difficult trip. But at some point, I thought, well, this is a good thing, because all these fears are not going to go away by my just turning my back on them. 
and maybe by confronting them and trying to step through them, I will come back a little less unsettled by height. So at least I'll always remember, well, I did climb that uh, rickety staircase from the London Underground a thousand feet above the Sri Lankan jungle. I, I actually conquered my fear briefly. I was looking at your face as you were recalling all of these great results of tackling fear. And I don't think you or I would ever, nobody would look at us and say, oh, there's a a mighty risk-taking adventure, you know. (laughs) But we go to places that we are a little uncertain about and we get out of our comfort zones. Mm. And if I think back on the really powerful experiences I've had, Mm. whether it's taking a iron uh, cable way under a, around a cliff that I did last summer. That was scary for me physically, a Via Ferrata in the Swiss Alps, uh, going down to Central America during the difficult civil wars there, going to Iran a little while ago, traveling through India, being, you know, with a, some scary cabbie driver in Moscow going out to the airport. These have been very frightening things for me. But I don't think any of them were really reckless in riskiness. They were just embracing the world and learning from it. Travel can make us conquer our fears, I guess, or turn them into something positive. It's like falling in love. And I think fear is based on ignorance. I remember when I began traveling in the 1980s, like you, I was in Central America and Cuba and places ostensibly dangerous. And then I read that in 1988, I think, Washington, D.C. had a higher murder rate than Kabul, Beirut, and San Salvador, all in the middle of war. And we forget that for many people in the world, the really scary places are Los Angeles and, and New York. So... And I often also think that if I were in an office for 50 weeks of every year or if I were at home looking after kids, when I had a holiday, all I would want is Hawaii or somewhere full of sunshine and ease, and I understand that. But like you, I'm lucky enough to get to travel a lot. And so just like you, I live in a very comfortable place in Japan. So when I travel, I want to see places as different as possible. I want to go to Yemen or Ethiopia or Haiti because they will shake me up the most and give me a a very different reality from the one that I know. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves, and we've been speaking with Pico Iyer. Pico's latest book is The Man Within My Head. Pico, one great thing about travel is uh, it humbles you. You're very self-assured and suddenly realized, oh, I guess I had it wrong. <laughs> Have you found that in your travels? Even in India, which is the country of my ancestors, it rearranges your soul. And India is like shock therapy, and it's, even for me it's almost too intense. But I always come out of India feeling, well, I've confronted something important and I will learn from it. And you've learned from it. Pico Iyer, thank you so much for sharing with us in your books and being with us today. Thank you. It's been a real delight, Rick. And I break above the way I feel the sun upon my face Pico Iyer shares many of his observations from his travels and a few photos, too, on his website at picoiyerjourneys.com. That's P-I-C-O-I-Y-E-R. And we have a link to that in this week's radio program details at ricksteves.com. Up next, let's consider a trip to Cape Town in South Africa. It's long been a favorite getaway for London-based travel writer Will Hyde. We'll discover why it might just become your favorite destination as well next on Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Shalom, shalom. I'm Martin Fletcher in Tel Aviv, and I'm Mr. Vevim Rick Steves. That was Hebrew for I'm Martin Fletcher in Tel Aviv, and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Koimli Martin Fletcher in Tel Aviv, and I'm Mr. Vevim Rick Steves. Travel writer Will Hyde says that Cape Town, South Africa, is the kind of city that makes him feel glad to be alive every time he visits. It's been one of his favorite getaways now for years. After starting with a prominent travel agency in London, Will now works as a freelance travel writer. His work often appears in Britain, in the Times of London and in The Guardian, in the BBC's Lonely Planet online magazine, and possibly in a travel section near you. Will writes a travel blog at beentheredone.it. And his Twitter account is at Will Hyde. And that's spelled H-I-D-E. Will, thanks for joining us. Thank you for asking me. Why does Cape Town make you feel so glad to be alive? Do you know, I'm not quite sure what it is. I'm not a very spiritual person, and I certainly don't think I'm a very fit person athletically, but there's just something, there's an energy about Cape Town that just gets me whenever I go there. Um, I'm very lucky being in London that with the reverse seasons, when it's the middle of our disgusting winter here in the UK, it's just an overnight, non-stop, no jet lag flight to Cape Town, and it's the middle of their summer. 
so I must admit I always do try and get down there between about November and March when the weather is glorious. But there's just an energy that really comes off from Cape Town. I think it it sounds quite airy-fairy, but it, it comes from the mountain itself. But there's also this fantastic creative sense down there. It's very much a clash, I think, of, of first world and third world head on. And there's just a real energy. And it, it really affects me when I go down there. I think I've been there 21 times now since 1996. So I just thoroughly enjoy it. When you talk about a clash of the first world and the developing world, you know, we think apartheid, but that's kind of old history now. And you're actually talking about a positive clash. How can a clash between the first world and developing world in the sense of South Africa be positive? In terms of the arts and everything down there, I mean, economically, I'm not pretending that things are fantastic. And I, I mean, I think people could easily pick me up on this. I have a fairly naive touristic view. And certainly when you drive in from the airport, you will very much see the uh, third world side of things. But it's just the creativity. I think a lot of people down there, it, it, it is quite easy to be negative, but there are an awful lot of people down there who are very positive, you know, considering how things were. But just uh, creatively, there's uh, a lot of energy down there. And I think people harness into that. Now, you said you're not necessarily a fit, a fit person. In other words, you're not, you're not an adventure sports uh, enthusiast, it sounds like. But it also sounds, from reading your article, that you enjoyed a lot of adrenaline sports. Talk about the accessibility of these adrenaline sports. Uh, what can we do down there to get our adrenaline just really pumping? Well, it's all very accessible, I have to say. I mean, Table Mountain itself, you can hike up it. Um, there is a cable car, and I would uh, recommend doing that, quite frankly. But once you're up the top, you can abseil off it. There is lots of kite surfing around, surfing. What is abseiling, Will? Abseiling is rappelling off with a rope. So you're just going to kind of bounce down the hill with the safety of the rope, rappelling, I guess. Exactly. Huh, that sounds like fun. The view is absolutely awesome. So, so let me get this straight for those of us who haven't abseiled. You're wearing a harness and you've got some sort of way that the rope safely threads through your harness so that you go down in a controlled way? Absolutely. You've got it spot on and you're, you're controlling yourself. And obviously, when you first step over the side of the mountain, it's contrary to all your, your natural thoughts. So you think it's all going to go horribly wrong, but then the rope clips in and you control yourself going down. So it's just one foot over another very easy. And can you control um, how far you bounce? You could go swooping way out and go down 10 meters per bounce or absolutely. timidly go five feet at a time or something. Yes, absolutely. I was definitely category B. I was I was wow. Mr. Timid. But if you go a second time, you probably get a little bolder. But then what what they didn't tell me the first time was that halfway down there's this massive overhang of several hundred feet. So all of a sudden you can't put your feet in anything and you're just dangling in midair, at which point it it got a little more hairy, I have to say. Were you wearing a helmet? Oh yes. Wouldn't never help quite you sure much. what the point is. <laughs> no, I'm never quite sure what the point is of wearing a helmet apart from probably ticking some health and safety sign. I did a, a via ferrata in Switzerland that way and I was clipped to a metal cable on the face of a cliff where a couple of thousand feet drop immediately below me and you know I think people who live with cables are more comfortable with that but if you've never lived with a cable you're not likely to trust it as readily as as local people or something like this. Exactly. Yes, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what the point of a helmet was. But, uh, <laughs> okay, talk about sandboarding. You, you wrote uh, pretty exciting about that. You said landing on sand, even at speed, is gentler than landing on snow. Yes, that's um, about an hour away you can go sandboarding, which is just uh, like it sounds. It's snowboarding, but on sand. The only difference being that for several days afterwards, if you do fall over, you will be finding sand in places that you didn't know sand could end up. Uh, so it's uh, like kind of taking a bit of the holiday home with you. Describe it. Describe exactly what you do. There are these big uh, sand dunes in a place called Betty's Bay, and uh, you hike up to the top of them. And then, again, this is where my Mr. Timid comes in. You can either sit on the board and sort of go down on your uh -huh. backside, or the uh, the more adventurous can stand up, and it's uh -huh. like uh, snowboarding. It's like skiing, like skiing or snowboarding on sand. Oh, yeah, so, fun. I mean, Cape Town has a lot of these things you can do and even if you're not normally a very ad adventurous type, which, I mean, to be honest, I'm really not, it's all there on your doorstep down there. It's a very compact city. Um, I mean, I think I should be getting a cut from the, the PR team, quite frankly, <laughs> because I love it so much. But the fantastic restaurants and, and everything down there, and then, um, of course, all the wineries just nearby. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Will Hyde, and Will's a travel writer from London. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Judy's on the line in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Judy, thanks for your call. Oh, 
taking my call. This is so exciting. Do you have a question for South Africa, Judy? I do. I'm going with a small group of friends. We're going to start off going to Joburg, probably Victoria Falls, over to Kruger, down to Sosluwe, and then we have days in Cape Town at the end. It's only a group of about 12 of us, mostly females, and when we're in Cape Town, I want to do some sightseeing like a local, not necessarily like tourist things, and also we're going to be there during the big whale festival in Humanus, and I don't know how to get there, but I definitely want to be there. So if you could tell me how many days possibly to be there, and I don't think I can drive on the wrong side of the road or the other side, so what kinds of transportation we could use to get out to different places around Cape Town. That'd be great. So, Will, first explain, what is this whale festival that Judy's interested in? Well, yes, the town is Hermanus, and I've, I must admit, never been there quite at the right time of year to see this, but September, I'm told, is the absolute uh, best time to be there. It's one of the few places, I'm told, where the whales come right into the shore, so you don't need to go out in a boat. You can see them from the clifftop. There's a chap there who will blow his horn. A local local guy blows a horn whenever the whales are sighted, and then it peaks in this, this festival where it's just everything whale-related. If there's a bunch of you and you don't want to drive on the other side of the road, uh, which is, is understandable. I would think you can easily hire a like a taxi for the day or whatever, or a minibus and a driver. It's not going to be too expensive, especially divided by all of you. And then if you wanted to, you could certainly stop in, in maybe somewhere like uh, Stellenbosch on the way there or back, which is a town about 30 miles east of Cape Town. It's the There's an old university there. It's also the center of the vineyards. There are literally hundreds of vineyards around there, so you could possibly stop off for a tasting if if that was something you wanted to do. Will, how would you uh, compare Johannesburg and Cape Town? Because Judy's going to both. Uh, Chalk and cheese. Joburg has a very unfortunate reputation about in the mid-90s. You know, things there were, were rather unstable, and certainly here in the UK, it was on the news a lot uh, for all the wrong reasons. I have been to Johannesburg several times, and I think it's a fantastic city. I think if you have a good guide, it's got, a, again, a tremendous energy. There's a lot to see and do. It's not as picturesque as Cape Town. Um, it's more a, a workaday city, but there is a lot you can do there. I would certainly recommend going to the uh, Apartheid Museum, mm-hmm. which explores the, the more recent history of South Africa. All right. Judy, thanks for your call. I hope that gives you some good ideas. Let us, let us know how your trip goes. Okay, bye now. Bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Will Hyde, a travel writer from London, about exploring Cape Town. Will, uh, thinking about Judy's uh, trip and so on, in a lot of countries that I've been in, uh, you can rent a minibus with a local driver and five or six people share it and just have it for the day. And it's actually quite luxurious and efficient and also affordable. Is that an option in South Africa? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think certainly for us British, South Africa is a a very reasonable country and generally costs are going to be below uh, what you would have in the USA as well. So things work out definitely cheaper. The local tourist board down there, if you email them, I've always found them very helpful and receptive. So that's one way someone who's going down there could get in touch beforehand to find out uh, some options for hiring a car and a driver. And you did talk earlier alluding to the uh, pretty serious gap between wealthy people and poor people, and there's a, a lot of people in living in, in horrible living situations and so on, and we don't want mm. to be uh, naive to that. On the other hand, a tourist going down there just to have some fun as a tourist, can they be in Cape Town and feel safe and feel comfortable even with this uh, you know, gripping poverty out in the countryside? Uh, well, the short answer is yes. I mean, I always think of uh, in terms of not would I want to go to a particular place, but would I want to send my folks? And for a long time, when I went down to Cape Town, my mum especially could not understand why I was going down there. And she was always worried. And then I was saying, look, you know, there's the South Africa you see on the news and there's the South Africa you see when you get there. And I'm not for a second saying that, you know, bad things don't happen. But as a tourist, they generally take place in in spots that you would never go to. Uh, I mean, you know, an American tourist wouldn't get off the plane at Heathrow and go to some of the more, uh, you know, what we would say are dodgy bits of of, uh, London. And it's exactly the same in South Africa. I have been there 21 times. I've never had a problem. Um, I eventually said to my folks, look, come on, you've got to get down there. And they loved it, and they've been there several times since. So 
you know, you can go to Cape Town and in, in some parts of it, you would think you're in Southern California. There's, right. you know, people going around in, in drop top convertibles and there's the beach life. And yet, on the other hand, there's the the grimmer side of, of economic reality, which you can go and explore. And with the right tour company locally, you can make sure that you're putting money into the community and it's okay. not a voyeuristic experience. So you can have that educational reality tour dimension actually with the help of a local guide if you want to deal with the social and economic problems that South Africa, like so many countries, is dealing with. Neil is on the phone in Bayside, Wisconsin. Neil, thanks for your call. Um, I... Uh found the trip out to uh, Robben Island by ferry to be particularly fascinating, not just for Robben Island itself, but certainly the ferry ride out there was visually spectacular. But the real highlight, I thought, of the visit to this prison where Nelson Mandela was held for those many years uh, was that the the tours were provided by uh, former prisoners, former colleagues of uh, Mr. Mandela, and I, I thought that provided a real special sort of tour of what could have been just a, okay, well, here's, you know, here's the cell, here's the prison, that added touch of having one of the former prisoners helping you understand that site, I thought was very powerful. Why, I bet. And it, it just was a terrific place to visit, learned a lot of history. The people were uh, were phenomenal. And, and we happened to be down actually in Cape Town working rather than uh, touring and just had a you know an afternoon off. And it was very easy to organize, whether it was you know the trip up to uh, Table Mountain or the uh, ferry out to Robben Island, both of them, you know, just really special experiences. Neil, did you uh, have any sort of adventure sports or get out on the water or over the water in any way? We did. As a matter of fact, uh, we were at the Victoria and Alfred waterfront where there were just endless, wonderful restaurants. This was a real surprise to us, the trip. We weren't actually supposed to be in Cape Town. We had been shooting up in uh, George and Port Elizabeth on a video shoot and uh, came to Cape Town as a surprise. And, and so with a little time on our hands, we saw on the waterfront not only the lovely restaurants, but a uh, someone offering helicopter rides. And when you're at this part of the world, it was hard not to take advantage of seeing the tip of a continent. And so we jumped into the helicopter and went flying out over the area around wow. Cape Town. And, and, and one of the things we thought, in addition to absolutely spectacular views, a loop around Table Mountain, the pilot was at levels that probably the uh, U.S. FAA wouldn't approve of, but uh, came down very close to the water and was uh, searching desperately for sharks. He said he often found himself warning surfers who were out in the waves when he saw a dark shadow behind them. He would kind of swoop down and make this uh, gesture of Ah. fin to them so they would be alert to look behind their board and see if there was a dark shadow chasing them. So it it was both beautiful and entertaining and a quick trip, but a nice opportunity to see a lot of Cape Town in a short period of time. In light of that, in his article, Will wrote about dolphin spotting and cage diving among white sharks. Will, can you talk about that for a bit? Well, that's that's right. I've done it a couple of times. Uh, you can go cage diving with the great white sharks. I have to say, though, you can ask plenty of people who say it's not a very politically correct thing to do. What they do to attract the sharks in is they tip stuff over the side of the boat, which is a, like a mixture of, I think it's raw tuna and other stuff called chumming. And since I've done that, my opinion has has maybe changed a wee bit because uh, certainly friends down there have said that it's just messing with Mother Nature. And you're teaching sharks to enjoy eating humans, aren't you? Well, that is certainly one way of looking at it. The the debate is very 50-50. You'll speak to 10 different people, get five say one thing, five say Mm. another. So, I mean, I've done it, so I sound a bit hypocritical. Uh, If you're going to do it, read up about it, and then if you still think you can. I mean, I have to say, from an adrenaline point of view, it is, is just unbelievable <laughs> to be in the imagine, cage. Yeah. But I, I, as I say, I do feel somewhat hypocritical having said that. All so there right. are people probably out there now listening and thinking, no, don't do it. Don't, don't do, do it. it. Hey, Neil, before we say goodbye, what was your favorite eating experience in South Africa? Actually, it was at a, uh, a B&B that we were staying at in George, and it had more to do with the people than anything else. We were staying there, and they, they said, uh, the, the woman who owned the place said that her husband wanted to prepare a traditional South African barbecue the next night, and it would be like $10 extra on the bill or whatever. And we said, well, of course. I mean, nothing would be better. And, and so they, they barbecued this tremendous variety of meats, and uh, we had a, 
a wonderful evening of talking to them and, and dining. Hmm. The next day when we settled up uh, the bill, I noticed there was no extra charge for that. And she said, no, no, we just told you it was going to be extra because we thought that if we told you it was free, you wouldn't want to take advantage of our hospitality. <laughs> so they, they told us there was a charge when they, <laughs> oh. they really just intended to entertain us. That's and, a... uh, nice, nice people. That's, that speaks volume, just that, that little uh, gesture there. Hey, Neil from Wisconsin, thanks for your call. All right. Uh, we're talking about uh, South Africa with Will Hyde, a travel writer friend from London. And Will, uh, just to close things off, paint a picture for me. The sun's going down in Cape Town. You're at the very south tip of Africa. People are out and relaxed. Where's the best place to be? Where, where do you get the, the magic for the sunset? I would say head to Camps Bay. There are um, several beaches very, very close into the center of Cape Town. There's a stretch called Clifton, and then just round the bay from that, there's a suburb called Camps Bay. And if you wanted to go to one spot with a nice, cool cocktail and watch the sun go down, then you could not go wrong with doing it in Camps Bay, watching the, uh, the sun sink over the beach there. Wow, so many dimensions to Cape Town, and it sounds like it's affordable. And from London, it's a straight shot south, so no jet lag. No, not for us. We're very <laughs> lucky on that front. And as Neil pointed out, I've just got to say that uh, people in South Africa, very, very friendly, fantastic. Some of the friendliest people you'll ever meet, without doubt. You've got the magic moment there. Everything's going together. What do you tell your hosts? Lekker. Everything is lekker, which means cool or, or you know, awesome. And uh, you can have a lekker time. It's a good word to describe Cape Town, I think. Everything is lekker. All right. Well, Lekka, it sounds like a lekker place to go. Thanks, Will Hyde. Very. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at the BBC's Western House Studios in London for their technical help. We've archived many of the interviews from Travel with Rick Steves by destination and topic and made them available as an app for your smartphone. Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe package on iTunes and at ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Along those same lines, Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler, is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.